0: following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, good morning. One of the uh, unfortunate realities of living in Hampton Roads is that there are not very many baseball fans. I never dreamed that I would live in Virginia and be surrounded by Canadian hockey fans. I don't know what the deal is with that, but anyway, I guess when the two closest teams to you geographically are the Baltimore Orioles and the Washington Nationals, it's kind of tough to establish a real robust fan base. Uh, so. Uh, when I grew up in Connecticut, I was right in the middle of probably the greatest rivalry in all of sports, the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. And, uh, so, but anyway, I love that rivalry and I love baseball. And so I'm going to ask you to indulge me this morning with a little bit of trivia. Uh, So in uh, 2008 was the final season that the New York Yankees played in what was now known as the old Yankee Stadium. They built this brand new, beautiful stadium uh, that they started in 2009. So in 2008, and and I'm guessing probably only one or maybe two people here will be able to answer this question, so I get it. Uh, It's not a Montreal Canadiens question, so whatever. Uh, Anyway, uh, so who was the last Yankee pitcher to start a game at the old Yankee Stadium, and no googling, by the way, about this. So uh, Wendy, very good. She was at the first service, so she heard this already. And, uh, but she probably she probably already knew that. and I know she knows, I know she knows the answer to the second question. OK, so who was the last closer to close that game? Who? Mariana Rivera, very good. greatest closer of all time. Only closer to only baseball player to ever get a totally unanimous vote into the hall of fame so anyway it dawned on me that I will be the answer to a cornerstone trivia question who was the last pastor to preach at two services before we switch back to one service it's me, it's me. yeah <laughs> So next week, Lord willing, we will be all together at Munden Point Park for our picnic and our service at 11 o'clock. And then on the following Sunday, November 7th, we'll all be together here for one service uh, at 10 o'clock. So, all right, enough of that. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And we're going to read a fairly long passage together. So this morning I want to um, talk about a subject that I have, uh, uh, that's really taken on new meaning and significance for me personally. And, um, so, uh, over the last couple of years, uh, it's Christ's resurrection and the centrality of that to our Christian faith. The great reformer Martin Luther, uh, has said, our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. So we are mostly familiar with the story of Jesus, uh, death and resurrection, uh, after you know, he was for being crucified for our sins and then rising again. So we celebrate it as believers um, every Sunday, right? Every Sunday gathering of his people. But it seems that in much of American Christianity, it's kind of lost its importance to us on a day-to-day basis. So I hope today to refocus uh, on this central event in our faith and in its daily outworking to kind of whet your appetite to learn more and to be transformed by it. Um, And also, I'd like to do something a little different this morning and ask you to please stand uh, for the reading of God's revealed, holy, and infallible Word. So listen together as I read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting at verse 12, and I'm going to read all the way through 58, so all the way through the end of the chapter, except I'm going to leave out a small passage, about six verses somewhere in the middle, that um, aren't unimportant verses, but they're just not the core of what I'm talking about today, and I'm a little pressed for time, so I'm going to just go ahead and leave that out. I'll probably get to that another day. Uh, but anyway, here, here's the reading of God's word, beginning with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then skipping down to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Your labor is not in vain. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, most of us are familiar with the accounts of our Savior Jesus' resurrection. And while there are some minor differences among the gospels, there is—they are truly minor—and they're really just the kinds of differences that you would expect to see in such a shocking uh, event, all right? That would—that um, was witnessed and processed by different people with different perspectives and really writing for different audiences. And uh, so, all four accounts, though, agree on the following. I'm going to boil it down to what they all tell the same. Okay, Jesus was crucified had died and was taken off of the cross by Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph wrapped the body in a linen shroud and laid it in his own tomb since it was the day of preparation right before the Sabbath. okay, So they had to work quickly. And a great stone was rolled in front of the tomb. At some point very early on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene arrived at the tomb. Now, John, the gospel writer, only mentions Mary Magdalene, so she is common to all four accounts, but the synoptic gospel authors also mention Mary, the mother of James, or the other Mary, and a couple of other women are variably mentioned as well. Nonetheless, upon their arrival, the massive stone that was sealing the tomb had been rolled back, and either one or two persons or angels were present, and they were either dressed in white or they had the appearance of light. One of these beings, whoever or how many of them there were, spoke and declared that Jesus was not there, that he had risen. Upon hearing this, the women, or the woman, ran from the tomb and told at least some of the disciples, and then sometime later, whether that day or or at some other time, Jesus himself appeared to the disciples. None of these details is disputable among the gospel narratives. Beyond the written words of the gospel writers, though, imagine with me for just a moment what this might have been like. The one that the disciples and other followers of Jesus had finally taken to be the Savior of Israel had been defeated by the Roman machine, aided by their own Jewish leaders, another dead revolutionary and more years of oppressive pagan rule in their own land. Well, shortly after he had surrendered his spirit, Jesus' blood in his body would have probably congealed thickened, become more like caulk than blood. Throughout the Mosaic law, God told the Jews that the life of a person or an animal was in the blood. And so blood that is thickened now and, and really not even able to move around in your body, it can't flow any longer, can be understood to have no life in it. The tomb holding Jesus' body was dark, it was quiet, Still. There wouldn't have even been any visitors on the outside because it was the Sabbath and everybody was at home. But then his heart began to beat. His blood began to flow. His brain began to fire back up. His lungs expanded to draw in oxygen, and they exhaled to breathe out the carbon dioxide. And probably after a few moments, I imagine anyway, a wry little smile began to creep across his face, and he opened up his eyes and he sat up in the dark. From there, of course, we have no idea what really happened. Did Jesus roll the stone back and walk out? Did one or two of the angels, did an earthquake happen to move the stone? We don't know. What we do know, however, is that Joseph of Arimathea got his tomb back. He probably didn't realize that he was just lending it to Jesus. Jesus left the tomb behind and went on his way. He was no longer in the grip of the death to which he had given himself on our behalf three days earlier. In fact, he used death for his own purposes. Well, no wonder it took a little while for the witnesses and the apostles and the Romans and Jewish leaders to process what had happened. But it's clear from the scriptures that they all knew exactly what had happened, though some doubted and some denied it and tried to cover it up. But once the apostles started to come with grips with this glorious news, probably remembering the times when Jesus had actually foretold this, but also, by the way, actually having meals and sitting with Jesus and talking to him face-to-face with a real-life, flesh-and-blood Jesus, whom they sometimes recognized and sometimes didn't, they couldn't help but tell of it. This was done at a great cost to their livelihoods, to their reputations, and for some, even their very lives. So central was it to understanding Jesus that they replaced Judas specifically to testify about the resurrection. In Acts chapter one, it says, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And then in the next three chapters of Acts, the apostles speak publicly about it at least seven times. And then toward the end of Acts, Paul preaches the resurrection to Governor Festus, to King Agrippa, his wife Bernice, and the entire king's court. Wow. So why is this so important? that Christians should testify about it to the world. Well, let's walk through this passage from Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians 15 seems to move in a particular direction. It's Christ's resurrection, then our resurrection, then our uh, inheritance, our bodies are changed to inherit an an imperishable kingdom, and death is finally dealt a death blow. At the start of the chapter, chapter 15, before our passage that we read this morning, Paul is reiterating his gospel message. And in verses 3 and 4, he states what is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised again, again according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and to the other apostles, and then to still others, and then finally to Paul himself. And then he goes on to stress the central importance of Jesus' resurrection to our entire faith. Now, there were some in the Corinthian church who found the resurrection extremely difficult to believe. And in fact, outside of Judaism, which understood a future resurrection, this was was a very difficult idea for the rest of the world to swallow. It had never happened before. And as I've said previously, people in that day understood death. They were close to it all the time. They touched it. They didn't have funeral homes that took care of all of that. They had to prepare bodies for burial themselves. And in that context, no one had ever seen or expected to see someone rise up from the dead. And as I said, most Jewish sects, like the Pharisees, for example, did read in the scriptures the promise of eternal life and some sort of resurrection. Uh, N.T. Wright, in his excellent book, Surprised by Hope, he points out that most Jews of the day believed in an eventual resurrection, where God would look after the soul until death, uh, after death until he would give them back new bodies on the last day when he would judge and remake the whole world. And Martha reflects this belief when she says to Jesus, talking about Lazarus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Jews had a good understanding of this. And when, when Martha said this, it may be evidence that, in fact, she was listening when Jesus spoke at length about this earlier. In John chapter 6, for example, Jesus goes on at length about being the bread of life, the one who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. He makes many remarkable statements and promises in that passage, but there's one promise he makes four times. Of those who believe in him, who eat this bread from heaven, who feed on his flesh and drink his blood and have, therefore, eternal life, he says, I will raise him up on the last day. He says this four times in that discourse. But at the time of the resurrection, or at the time of the crucifixion, it was clearly not yet the last day, and the people and their leaders knew of no one who had risen again, let alone all of God's sleeping saints. But the Corinthian church was not primarily a Jewish church. It was mostly a Gentile church, uh, in a pagan culture, and they definitely had no paradigm for understanding anything like a resurrection. And even uh, certain Jewish sects like the Sadducees clearly denied the resurrection. So Paul launches into this lengthy diatribe on the importance of Jesus' resurrection. In verses 12 through 19 of our passage, he gives a series of if-then statements to help the believers understand that the resurrection of their Savior Jesus means everything. It provides hope for this life and for the life to come. It matters a great deal that Jesus rose again. It means he truly conquered death he could laugh at death he could poke it in the eye and even use it for his own ends which is exactly what he did so without the resurrection our faith is futile meaningless and we are still dead in our sins the wages of sin is death so jesus lived a sinful life on our beha- a sinless life on our behalf and suffered our wages unto death in order to satisfy that righteous payment. And then he shook death off and said, whatever, death, and now he gives us eternal life. Paul expounds on this further, starting in verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits was an important concept in Hebrew culture, Hebrew tradition. It usually referred to just what it sounds like. It was the first fruits of the harvest each year. These were the most precious and were offered to God in thanksgiving and trust that there would be more fruit coming. So Jesus was the first fruits of those whom God would call back from the dead into these newly resurrected bodies, meaning that there were more to come. Then Paul compares Jesus and Adam. Adam delivered death to mankind by his disobedience and his rebellion. But Jesus delivered mankind from death by his obedience and his loyalty to his Father. Paul further describes an order to this activity. God's people were not resurrected along with Jesus. They would come later. Jesus was the first fruits. Then when he returns, he will raise up those who have fallen asleep to be with him. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after he establishes his reign on the new earth. He must reign until no enemy is left. And at last, that final enemy will be death. While Jesus has already shown his dominion over death by using it and then beating it, it does still linger here on earth, right? We know this, but not for long, praise God. Death will finally and ultimately be put in total subjection under the king's feet and God will be demonstrably all in all. And starting in verse 35 now, Paul addresses another question frequently asked, uh, which many of us often ask even today, and there's a sense in which this is a good question, if only for curiosity's sake. And that question is, and it's kind of a twofold question, um, with the second question clarifying the first, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, it's unclear if this is kind of a sarcastic kind of question, similar to the Sadducees' question of Jesus when they were trying to trap him. If you remember in the Synoptic Gospels, the, everybody's trying to gang up on Jesus, right, and trap him in question. So the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, they come to him and they create this kind of weird scenario, right, where a woman has married a, a, a guy and the husband died. So then she marries his brother and he also dies. And she goes through seven men, I don't know who the seventh guy was it decided it would be a good idea to marry her with that track record, but uh, anyway, she goes through seven husbands, all of whom have died, and so they try to trap Jesus in okay, well in the resurrection whose husband will she be? There are seven options here, which one will she be? Um, and so try, they try to trap Jesus in this, and so, so this question that Paul is presenting here may be a similar rhetorical question that was used to try to trap quest- Christians uh, who believed in the resurrection. Well, Similar to how Jesus responded to the Sadducees, Paul answers these skeptics by calling them foolish. It's a question that entirely misses the point. They are stuck in the physical world of what they can see and touch and experience and are blind to the greater reality and promise of God to recreate his creation. God is not bound by our experiences. He can do whatever he wants. Well, seeds are a great illustration of this uh, they look nothing like the plant from which they come, and they look nothing like the plant that they will become. Okay? God gives them different bodies, and even similar-looking seeds become very different plants, as we'll see here. And as Jesus had illustrated another time, a mustard seed is just the tiniest of seeds, and yet it grows into one of the largest trees in the Middle East. Some plant seeds look pretty much exactly the same, Cucumbers and melons, for example, uh, cantaloupes, look the same, but they yield very different fruits. They look different, and they certainly taste different. Most kids will eat cantaloupe all day long, but give them a cucumber, maybe not so much. And pepper and eggplant seeds are also kind of hard to distinguish, but they yield very different fruits as well. But there's another analogy at work here. The mature mustard tree, or cucumber, or melon, or pepper, or eggplant, don't have a chance unless something else happens first. The seed from which they come must die. It must be put in the ground and die before it will yield a new shoot, from which comes a new taproot, and from which grows a glorious new plant. This is part of what Luther was saying with his quote that I read earlier. Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. And this is true not only of plants, but of animals and people, too, and also of heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the other planets. He gives each one a glorified body for his glorious purpose. And while what that looks like is fascinating and fills us with wonder, as it should, we also must humbly realize that this is the business of God. And if he says he's going to do it, we ought not to assume that just because we're not creative enough to guess what that might look like, that he can't do it. It's all done according to his own plan. So let's not wring our hands, Paul is saying, over what our resurrection bodies will look like or how they come about or any of that. Our bodies, which display God's glory, remember, God said his creation was very good, our bodies are perishable. I'm 55 years old, and while in many ways I'm sure I look and still feel very young, I am starting to feel my age, especially after yesterday's workday that we had here. So our, um, you know, uh, I'm looking at possible surgeries to my knee and my right shoulder. My back hurts more often than I like to admit. My feet have something painful going on in them, maybe arthritis. I don't know. My right ankle clicks whenever I walk downstairs. That's really enjoyable. And I'm not likely to be hiking the Appalachian Trail anytime soon. My hair is starting to turn gray, and I have less of it. These are all effects of sin, of the fall. Adam and Eve came with no expiration date. They were supposed to live forever in glorious fellowship with Almighty God. But their sin ushered in the curse of death. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that creation was subjected to futility and is in bondage to decay. The larger point that Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15 is that our resurrection bodies, like the resurrected world, will be imperishable. He begins to address this starting in verse 42. The body that will be raised will display God's glory in a way that's very different than our perishable bodies. It will be in some kind of an imperishable form. The body whose glory is now partially obscured in the dishonor of sin and death will be raised to fully and completely reflect God's glory. The body which dies in weakness, will be raised to share in the power that comes from God himself. And finally, the one who dies in a natural body will be raised to life in a spiritual body. Note, however, that it is still a physical body. Okay? This does not imply some kind of a wispy, non-material, ghost-like spirit. Okay? What he means by spiritual, it's the sense that it is consistent with the character and the activity of the Holy Spirit. Okay, which is how Paul always uses the word spiritual in all of his epistles. So he hasn't shifted gears here to come up with this new kind of ghost-like, ethereal you know, ooh, spirit kind of thing. Okay? It's still going to be very physical. Paul then continues to illustrate these perishable, imperishable, natural versus spiritual comparisons by going back again to Adam. Adam was a natural man, a man of the dust created by God, But Jesus, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Adam, as a living being, represented the first of his natural species. But Jesus, the last Adam, as a spiritual being, represents the first of his spiritual people. The point is that full spiritual existence in a glorified body does not come until natural existence in a physical body has ended. But when it does, we will share in the same kind of spiritual existence as our Lord as surely as we now share in the same kind of physical experience or existence as Adam. In his great work, Bible Doctrine, Wayne Grudem points out three things that Jesus' resurrection ensures for his people. It ensures our regeneration, our justification, and the promise of perfect resurrection bodies. Let's unpack this a little bit. So first, it ensures his resurrection ensures our regeneration. Regeneration is the act by which God gives us new life, converting us from dead sinners to living disciples through being born again. Here's what Peter says about this in his first letter, uh, 1 Peter 1.3, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is through Jesus' resurrection that we are born again. Well, this is kind of curious to us because we tend to think about being born again related to salvation, which is wrought by Jesus' death on the cross. We sing about it all the time, okay? And that is true. But it is more than that. It is brought about by his exit from the tomb. Remember, this is how Christ truly defeats death. So Grudem says of this, In his resurrection, Jesus earned for us a new life just like his. We do not receive all of that new resurrection life when we become Christians, for our bodies remain as they were, still subject to weakness, aging, and death. But in our spirits, uh, we are made alive with new resurrection power. Thus, it is through his resurrection that Christ earned for us the new kind of life that we receive when we become born again. Ephesians 6, uh, 2, 5 through 6 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. This is regeneration. Secondly, it ensures our justification. Okay, remember, regeneration is the act by which God gave us new life by being born again. Justification is a legal act of God in which he sees our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and he therefore declares us as righteous in his sight we are thus declared not guilty by god paul explicitly links jesus resurrection with our justification in romans 4:25 jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification God the Father declared his approval of Christ's redemptive work in his death for our sins when he raised him from the dead. Listen to Philippians 2, 8-9. It says that Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God approved of Christ's finished work on the cross, so if God raised us up with him, as it says in Ephesians 2.6, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of Jesus is also his declaration of approval of us. Theologian J. Gresham Machen's last recorded words were, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And third, Christ's resurrection ensures our perfect resurrection bodies. Going back to what Paul said to the Corinthians about Christ being the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep, first fruits also refers to the first taste of the coming harvest that indicates what that harvest will be like for that crop. So Christ, as the first fruits, shows what our bodies will look like when God raises us from the dead upon Christ's return, and he gathers us into his presence. Clearly, since his body was physical glorified, and imperishable, we can expect that our bodies will be physical, glorified, and imperishable. Hallelujah. Well, as Francis Schieffer asks, how should we then live? The resurrection has at least three applications for us in the here and now that I'd like to draw to your attention. So this to me has been a particular uh, challenge and exhortation and encouragement, and I would like to challenge, exhort, and encourage you as well while the resurrection is a remarkable event that seals for us our regeneration and justification, I think most Christians, and I'm saying this really from my own experience, uh, we miss how it is also key to our sanctification, to the working out of our salvation in this world. So here are three practical applications as Paul describes them. One, consider yourself dead to sin, Romans 6, 11 through 13. And I'll go back through and kind of unpack these a little bit more. So consider yourself dead to sin. That's the first one. The second one, seek things that are above, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And third, be steadfast in the Lord's work, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. So consider yourself dead to sin. Romans 6, 8 through 13 says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Here it is. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Christ's death is a death to sin. His resurrection shows his dominion or his dominance over death. We have died to sin through his obedience and we have also been raised with him. So live like you're a resurrection-powered saint because that's what you are. This is a great passage to meditate on this week and to get into your soul. Secondly, seek things that are above. Colossians 3, 1 through 5 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, here we go, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If you were planning to move to another country somewhere, okay, you would probably seek first to understand the culture, the language, their customs, uh, their culture, their history, okay, so that you could function as well as possible right out the gate. Well, we are moving to a far country. We are citizens of heaven. We are only passing through here. So remember how Paul warned in our 1 Corinthians passage that if there is no resurrection, then our faith is futile. This life is all there is, and we just die, and we are most to be pitied. So, as Kohelet would say in Ecclesiastes, we should just live it up. But because there is a resurrection, both Christ's and ours, this life is not all there is. So focus your minds heavenward. Put to death what is earthly in you. Prepare to move to the far country. And thirdly, be steadfast in the Lord's work. After everything Paul taught that we just kind of cruised through quickly, in 1 Corinthians 15, he wraps it up in verse 58 by saying, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. For the very reason that Christ was raised from the dead, and we will be too, we should be steadfast in his work. It should empower and incentivize us to be faithful, to tend the garden in which he has placed us. Grudem says of this, everything we do to bring people into the kingdom and build them up will indeed have eternal significance because we shall all be raised on the day when Christ returns and we shall live with him forever. So to summarize, consider yourself dead to sin. Seek things that are above and be steadfast in the Lord's work. Our job as followers of the resurrected conquering Christ is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the last day with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission as a sign of the first resurrection and a foretaste of the second one. Let's pray. Almighty God, great was the joy of Israel when Pharaoh and the Egyptian army died upon the shore of the Red Sea. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's enemy lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing force. He breaks the shackles of death, tramples down the powers of darkness, and lives forever. You apprehended your son for payment of our debt, and still he comes out of the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. In this event is proof that his offering is accepted. The claims of justice are satisfied. The devil's scepter is shattered, and his wrongful throne is leveled. In Christ, we have assurance that in him we died, in him we rose. In his life, we live. In his victory, we triumph and in his ascension, we will be glorified. Now give us your spirit to walk in newness of life, we pray, knowing that Jesus' death is our life, his resurrection, our peace, his ascension, our hope, and his prayers, our comfort. Amen.